Thank you for joining Beth Parker's weekly community talk show, Connection. Today's topic is The Power of Community with guest Bev Hannon. Hello, KHAS audience. This is Beth Parker, and uh, this afternoon we're going to be speaking with Bev Hannon. Uh, Bev is a former state legislator, and I'm going to ask you, Bev, good morning. How are you this morning? I'm doing fine. Thanks, Beth. Well, good. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about some of your political work later, but I'm wondering if you can just give us a little of your backstory. Yeah, well, I was born and raised in Manchester, Iowa, and I graduated from high school in 1950, so you can figure out how old I am. And um, then I worked in Manchester for a year and then moved to Cedar Rapids. Worked there quite a few years and um, as a secretary or a stenographer. And then I took a trip to Europe with my roommate and ended up staying a whole year in Europe and working in London for IBM uh, as a summer replacement. And then I uh, met a gal from Cork there and we decided we were gonna hitchhike through Western Europe and we were hoping maybe to get a job in Germany. So what I found out when I was ready to leave for the trip, though, was that there was a law in England that you couldn't leave with a certain amount of cash unless you could prove that you had brought that much in with you. And, of course, I had no way of proving what I brought in. Uh, But... My friend, uh, her name was Dimphna, and she was from Cork, Ireland. And she, even though she wasn't a British citizen, she could take whatever money she wanted out. So I had to give her my money, and she put it in uh, traveler's checks, and then we took off. And we probably only had $150, (laughs) $200 each. because we were planning on staying at youth hostels. They mm-hmm. were very popular then, mm-hmm. and you could cook your own meals and stuff. So we, uh, I borrowed a rucksack. Do you know what a rucksack I is? I sure do. Yeah, okay. And we packed all our stuff in there, cooking utensils, travel books, clothes, uh, first aid kit, everything. Everything that I owned while I was in England, mm-hmm. I had in that bag, except a winter coat, I guess. And this was uh, summer when we started out. So anyway, uh, a real funny thing that happened on, on the way, uh, we were going to hitchhike to, um, oh, I forget which city in England, the port that goes to Calais, France, I can't remember. Anyway, we caught a ride with two young guys, and uh, then we got on the ferry going across the channel and got visiting with these two young fellows, and they were heading to Calais and then someplace else. I don't know where it was, and I don't remember their names now, but uh, the one that I was talking to was talking about his family, and he said his dad was a policeman, and I said, oh, really? And... Um, he said, yeah, he works the beat down by 3M building, which I walked by almost every day on my way to work mm. at IBM. And I thought, boy, that's funny, because I used to talk to a, a British policeman down there, an older man that had a big white uh, handlebar mustache. And sometimes he would walk with me 
and we'd talk about different things and he'd always ask me, why are you over here, you know, or what are you doing and what's your family think of this and everything. Well, anyway, as it turned out, this young man that had given us a ride showed me a picture of his family, and it was the same cop. Small world. Small world, but the city of London was 25 million in yeah. population. What's then the chances? What, what are the chances of something like that? Were, so, you, were you ever afraid as young women in Europe? Oh, yeah. Uh, with your independence? I mean, oh, just being. Oh, yes. And I think I told you one time we had a very bad experience in Lyon, France, mm -hmm. where um, I don't know if you want to hear about this at well, all. Well, <laughs> yeah, just, you know, well, a few sentences about what happened, and then we can talk about it. It'll probably be quite a few sentences. Um, we, uh, this woman that I was hitchhiking with, her name was Dimpna, and I called her Dimp. And anyway, we had a, a rule between us that... <clears throat> We would only spend $10 a day, and that had to include evening accommodations. Like we figured $3 for a youth hostel, and then we had $7 each a day for food or any transportation or anything. So we were really skimming, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, and we also agreed we'd never get in a car with two or more men, and that we would not hitchhike at night. We figured that just doesn't make any good sense to do that. But one time we got a ride with one man. We're driving through the countryside, and I was always in the back seat because I didn't speak any French, and she had had French in high school and could say a few sentences and stuff. So anyway, we're driving along. We get stopped by what would be the equivalent of the highway patrol. And uh, the officer talked to the driver for some time, and then the driver said, all right, you gals have to get out. And you didn't know what the officer was saying, right? No, you not, no. Okay, we didn't, but the officer could see these two big rucksacks, you know, and yeah. knew that we were probably hitchhiking. And we figured probably that the man's insurance didn't cover hitchhikers, and so we got dumped out in the middle of nowhere in the country. Whoa. Well, then it started to rain, and, and as we approached Lyon, which is in the southern part of France, and uh, we looked in our guidebook and found a hotel, the lowest price hotel that we could find in Lyon, but it was $20, and we thought, oh, we can't spend $20 <laughs> on a hotel if we're only $20 maximum expenditure for gotcha. two of us. So we stopped at the hotel, and they said, yeah, it was $20 was the least expensive. So he said, no, huh? And we went out into the rain then and ended up getting a ride with one man in a small French car, which smelled like musk. I, I hate that smell to this day. And anyway, uh, Dimpf sat in the front seat. I sat in the back with the two bags. And we drove and we kept going. The man had told her that he knew where there was an inexpensive hotel. So uh, we drove and drove and it kept looking like we're going out of the city, you know, what's going on here? And it was still drizzling and raining and there were street lights, you know, but it was kind of foggy and misty. Anyway, all of a sudden she turned around and said to me, we're gonna stop, get out, don't say anything. And I thought, wow, what's that? Uh, we're not anywhere near, a, uh, you know, the city or a hotel or anything. So uh, we got out. I handed her her bag. She put it on, and I started to get out. And 
was struggling with my bag and the guy had gotten out of the car and I thought he was helping me with the bag mm -hmm. and I got it on and snapped it in the front. Well, mine weighed about 47 pounds and had a real big uh, metal brace like around my waist and a metal spine kind of going up the back. Anyway, all of a sudden the guy whirls me around and he started pawing at me and trying to kiss me. And, Whoa. and mm -hmm. I, I got my left arm up under his <clears throat> knee, but then he pushed me against this wooden, tall wooden fence. And of course, with the backpack on, I was, you know, uh, in such an Disabled. awkward position. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in such a helpless position. And I kept saying to my friend, hit him, hit him, you know. And anyway, um, uh, she didn't. She just kept clutching this small bag she had, which had all her money in it and a flashlight. And I'd say, hit the so-and-so, you know, <laughs> with the flashlight or with yeah. the bag. Wow. And I, I, I just was pressed up against this uh, fence, and he tore the sleeve off of my raincoat and was ripping at my clothes and stuff. And anyway, all of a sudden, crack, he pushed up against me and the fence gave way and I fell on my back in the middle of this puddle with this guy on top of me. And it knocked the wind out of me and I was gasping for breath, you know, and apparently it scared him. He thought I, he had really hurt me. So he jumped up and jumped in his car and screeched off. So then Dimph helped me get up, and I said, why didn't you hit him? And she said, well, I thought it would make it even worse. I thought he'd take our money. And I said, Dimph, couldn't you tell? He wasn't after our money. Yeah. You know? So anyway, we got up and, and went back out on the sidewalk, and we're, gonna, we're planning to walk, uh, re-walk, or go the way we had been. All of a sudden, this car comes down the street again, and it was this guy, and he drives up on the sidewalk like he was going to hit us. Mm -hmm. And so we ran into an alley, and he followed us, and we ran into another alley, and he followed us, and uh, we ran into this kind of empty lot. And the guy drives off the road into the empty lot uh, after us, and we ran into another space, and we were hysterical practically because it looked like the guy was trying to kill us, you know. And we dashed into this one little entryway like that was kind of deep and we got back in the, the corner there and he drove by and apparently didn't see us. Mm -hmm. So we stayed there for a while. And I'm sure both of us were crying and panting and, you know, like I say, almost mm -hmm. hysterical. And anyway, we didn't see him again. And so we, we started walking along the street that looked, like I said, warehouses and everything. But we noticed a light in a basement window. And we looked in the window, and there was an older man and a young boy playing some kind of card game, mm -hmm. card game um, on the table. Mm -hmm. And so we knocked on the window, and the man came out, and my friend... Uh, tried to explain that we had had kind of an accident or something bad happened and he could see my raincoat mm. was in mm -hmm. shreds and you know we had been crying and and so um, she asked him if he knew 
that we were looking for an inexpensive hotel. And he said, well, he knew of one uh, several blocks away, he would take us there. So we decided, well, an old man and a young boy playing cards, he's probably okay. Pretty so safe. he dropped us at the same hotel we had been at. Uh -huh. And so we came gladly, up with the 20 bucks. We paid 20 bucks and then we ate oatmeal only for a couple of days after that because we had spent, shot our wad on that. But yeah, I had an enormous bruise on my back and was really sore and everything from that. And but, probably glad that nothing worse happened. Oh yeah. But that's I, that's I, an I, that's an appropriate discussion for some of the things that are going on today. And um and and a and a transition into maybe some of your thoughts about about women's work and why um why you do some of the things that you do related to the women's equality coalition. Make a Right. Um, well, I think, you know, uh, women and men bring different perspectives mm -hmm. to jobs, any kind of job they do. And of course, to lawmaking or uh, the legislature, they have very different life experiences and they have very different expectations. Yeah. And so I think that um, that's why I'm very much uh, in support of having a more equal representation and a more diverse rep uh, representation because you and I both know that if you're Asian or Hispanic or black, you have a different experience than I as a white woman have, mm -hmm. and I have a different experience from white men or other men. And those things, those issues all get kind of jumbled together. So it's I think it's very smart for any group to have a diverse representation in its staff. Um, and yes, I was interested in things that were concerning women and children because that, that was my life. Um, I'm married and my husband and I had raised six children. So I knew what homemakers and housewives go through on budgeting and discipline of children. and worries that you have with raising kids and things that can happen to kids. And then my experience as a single woman, like in this hitchhiking, I was probably oh, 26, 27 years old when I was doing that. Um, those experiences of figuring out money, like when we were going across Europe, we had to be so careful of money uh, we couldn't have anything that was luxurious um, at all. And we had to be careful who we chose to associate with and everything. So all of those life experiences stuck with me and influenced me when I was in the legislature. So we'll come back to the leg legislature, but so what do you tell young women that want to go on a, a trek or an adventure like that? What kinds of cautions? Oh, golly. <laughs> Uh, that was a long time ago, and uh, should we be things... more cautious now? Or yeah, that that's a hard issue. I've read a lot of articles about you know uh, helicopter parents. Uh, should you let your kids walk to school alone? Should you walk with them and everything? Um, it's a hard decision, and I don't really know what to advise people. I think they just have to look at their children and realize how mature they are if mm -hmm. they are making good decisions uh -huh. like uh, growing up 
uh, how much freedom to give them or how much room to give them to go. Um, I don't think I, I could advise parents. To Is that how you've raised your children, you and Dave? A measure uh, of much, independence and a measure so. of discipline? Um, our kids would say it was different, of course, because they would say, oh, uh, us older kids, you know, we had all these rules and everything. But the younger ones, they didn't have any of that. And I think there was some of that in play. Because, you, you learn as, yeah. you, as you go along. Uh, we lived out in the country in Jones County, and our kids worked at uh, McDonald's in Marion. And uh, they... We never bought our kids a car while they were in high school or college. And so we had to work out uh, with Dave working in Cedar Rapids at Collins and me at home. Then um, before I went into the legislature, we had to uh, schedule times with cars and stuff. And when I was going through a bunch of papers the other day, I came upon an agreement that we... <laughs> that we had with our three older kids about when they could use the car, how much we would charge them for mileage, what the rules were, and how they would lose their opportunity to use the car. So you kids out there who uh, have advantage of the parent's car, are you listening? Yeah. And um, then, of course, uh, we're reminded by the older three kids especially yeah, but you didn't do that with the younger two or three, you know. Gotcha. And I think we did. We loosened up, you know, with uh, the younger ones, I think. But we never bought our kids a car, okay. and they always had to pay for gas, and they always had, had times they had to be and, home. Mm -hmm. They had to keep it clean. And um, anyway, one of uh, a funny incident, I'll tell you, um, regarding cars, we had, um, I can't even remember what kind of a car it was, so it was a very small uh, car, but uh, our son David, our older son David, uh, had been driving it, he had a license and everything, and somehow or other he went in the ditch and <laughs> told the car. Well, so we had it hauled back to uh, the farm and it was out like in a barnyard or some, something and um, I, I was in the Senate by then and one of the senators was totally opposed to seat belts and I was in support of seat belts because I thought they saved lives and uh, I, I worked a lot with human service issues and I know how costly and um, exasperating it can be to try to find proper help for people that are head injured or have a spinal injury mm -hmm. or something because of a car accident or mm -hmm. a motorcycle accident. So I was always in favor of seat belts and of helmets for motorcycles and this man by the name of Joe was very opposed to him and he used to come into the Senate with big piles of paper and say, I've got 15,000 signatures here to cancel the seatbelt law mm -hmm. and stuff and we wouldn't do it. And um, <laughs> one of the other women senators who happened to become uh, the Lieutenant Governor, Joy Corning from Cedar Falls, was always a proponent of seatbelts and um, helmets and he he was always arguing with her so one weekend I was home and I happened to be out in the barnyard and I thought those seat belts in that car just sitting there by themselves I think I'll play a little joke on Joe 
So I cut the seat belt out of one of the seats and I took him to the, down to Des Moines and I made sure I got into the Senate early one morning and I scotch taped the seat belt to this Joe's, Senator Joe's chair. And then I just sat and pretended like I was reading papers and stuff to watch what reaction uh, I got from him. And of course he looked at his chair and he, who did this, you know? And then as soon as we were called into session, he said, Senator Corning, I don't think you're funny with the seatbelt or something like this. And I just sat there, you know, not saying a word. And Senator Corning said, well, I didn't do that, Senator. And he said, you, you sure did. You're always the one that mine. He went on and on and on. Well, I never confessed to that until after he was out of the Senate and came back one time for some special occasion. And I got up and said, I have to make a confession. I have to come clean. Clear your soul. <laughs> because you blamed the wrong person all this time. I'm the one that put the seatbelt on there. And he, he laughed and he just shook his finger, finger at, at you. Me. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you had some interesting battles in the Senate. Talk a little bit about how you got there. I remember one time you said you had no intention of running. Oh, no. Say a few things about that. Yeah, I I. I wasn't really interested in politics at all, of course, and having six children fairly close together. I was so busy, you know, just to get through the day was uh, a major accomplishment for me. But I think um, it was during the Vietnam War, and I can remember I used to take the ironing board into the living room where we had our television and I would watch the news while I ironed and my kids would be playing on the floor around me. And um, then I, I would see, you know, uh, images of Vietnamese children, especially that one young woman that was burning and ran. I can't remember her name now. Mm -hmm. But then I would see all these young boys, you know, because I think the average age was 19 when they were in Vietnam. And I thought, you know, how how fortunate I was to think that my children weren't either the victims of that or the military that were mm -hmm. there. And I started to get really interested in why we were in Vietnam and yeah. going to meetings and uh, educational things and reading about it and everything. And then that led me to get a little more involved in local or, local or national politics. And I lived in Jones County at the time, and um, I started, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> I uh, wasn't able to go to college when I was growing up. And so after I got my kids all in school, the day that I put my youngest one on the bus for all-day kindergarten, I drove into Kirkwood and enrolled in Kirkwood. Uh, part-time. They had what was called Wednesday College at the time, and you could take two or three different classes uh, on a Wednesday, and you only had to come one day a week. Mm -hmm. But then it seemed like uh, every single Tuesday night, one of my kids would be running a fever or vomiting or something, and I missed, uh, you know, I had to miss a lot of mm -hmm. classes and stuff because of my family. But 
I, I really enjoyed going to school and learning and being with other adults mm -hmm. and being away from children. Even <laughs> though I loved my kids, it was a good break for me. So anyway, I took uh, one of the years that I was there, it took me forever to get a two-year degree in <laughs> at Kirkwood because I was only going a few mm -hmm. classes at a time. But uh, I took a, it was called a federal government class. And um, anyway, the, uh, I really liked the instructor. He was very thorough and he challenged us very much on anything that we would say, he would make us defend mm -hmm. what we said, which I thought was really good because then you have, to, <clears throat> you have to know why you believe something and why you're working for something. So um, one of the things that we had read about was uh, uh, groups like, um, I think it was NRA, the National Rifle Association, uh, at that time was quite a small group, but it was very influential in politics and it seemed to get almost anything it wanted. And so we were wondering uh, in the class and discussing how, to, how does something like that happen, you know, and then we were getting the statistics on how many people vote and how many people don't vote, which is really shameful about the number of people that can vote but don't vote. And then that means that they let a very small minority of people make the decisions of who makes all of the laws that govern their lives. And still I, happens today. Still happens today. Okay, go ahead. So anyway, we talked about the caucus and the conventions and nominations and stuff. And I thought, boy, I'm here I'm raising six kids that I think I'm raising them to be good citizens. But I've never been to a caucus. I've never been to a convention. I only vote in presidential elections. I never vote in school board or local races or anything. That's bad. I've got to change that. So I told my instructor, I'm going to go through that process up to the state convention, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, see how that all works and everything. Well, I think this was in 1972 or 1973, somewhere right around the Roe v. Wade decision. And um, so anyway, I went to the caucus and I, um, I volunteered to be the person to go I, first, I think I volunteered to be the secretary of the caucus, and then I volunteered to be a delegate to the county convention. So then I went to the county convention, and I decided I'm going to be a delegate to the district convention. So I did that, and then I decided, well, I'm going to go all the way to Des Moines. I'm going to go to the convention in Des Moines. And like I say, this was about the time of the Roe v. Wade decision. Well, it turned out that <clears throat> we were in the Veterans Coliseum or something, and there were microphones on two sides of the room, and people would come up and talk. Well, that was the only thing that people talked about was abortion. You were either in, in favor of women having that right, or you were very opposed to it, and people got up there and got very emotional mm -hmm. and yelling and people in the audience got involved and were yelling and this and that and the other thing. And anyway, I don't know how much it had cost me to go there, but um, 
I was really disgusted because I thought we're not getting anything done. People are just yelling at each other and getting angry and nothing is getting decided. So I went back to my class and I told the instructor, um, Bill Rosberg, I think was his name. Well, I did it once. I'm not going to do it again. It was a waste of time and we didn't do anything. We didn't get anything done. And he said, but maybe you'd be better off uh, getting with a smaller group that is more active or more issue oriented or something. And he said, like the Audubon Society or a children's uh, support group or even your county party. And I thought, well, Audubon meets in Cedar Rapids. That's an hour drive in and an hour drive back by myself. All these other groups he mentioned, except the Jones County Democrats, were an hour away. That was six miles, eight miles away. I'll join the Jones County Democrats, so I did. Well, uh, the man that was the chair at the time was an older man, a Catholic farmer, very conservative. And uh, he, I think, he never actually verbalized this, but I think he thought women's place was in the home and no place else. Uh -oh. And so <laughs> when we would start talking about having fundraisers or who was doing what or door knocking and which candidates we were helping and which weren't, he would ask for a vote or for opinions. And if people didn't speak up, he'd go around the table and he'd say, okay, John, how about you? Pete, what do you think? Harold? And he would skip over us woman, women. Well, that irked me no uh. end. <laughs> and so I started speaking up whether I was invited to or not. <laughs> and then what, what really um, got me was that uh, we had a candidate, well, I think it was Roxanne Common was running for governor. And <clears throat> his big issue was abortion. And that was the only thing he considered when he looked at a candidate. He didn't care about taxes. He didn't care about uh, human service issues. He didn't care about the environment. The only thing he cared about was abortion. So uh, Roxanne, of course, was a pro-choice candidate. So he refused to distribute her literature or pass out her signs or do anything at all to so help So much her. for democracy. Huh? Yeah. And uh, then he was interviewed by the Gazette, I think it was, and he actually endorsed Grassley, Chuck Grassley, over mm -hmm. the Democratic candidate. And mm -hmm. I thought, by golly, that does it. That's it. You know, <laughs> this guy should be in he the He ruffled Republican. your feathers. He ruffled my feathers really, really good. So then uh, by this time, I had graduated from Kirkwood, and I was going to the University of Iowa part-time. And I was in a journalism class, and uh, I made friends with a young woman that was there. And we started talking politics, and we'd go out for coffee, or we'd go out for supper at night or something, and uh, sit and talk politics. And so I was telling her about what I was going to do at the Jones County level. I was going to uh, get friends of mine to go to the caucus, the next caucus and become precinct people. And then I was going to ask them to come to the, the county meeting 
And then when we elected chair, I wanted them all to vote for me. So I, I started lining up people. Uh, there were something, <coughs> excuse me, 27 precincts, I think. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. <clears throat> and so I started lining up people that agreed that they would come to the caucus and become a precinct person. And I thought, I'm going to give it a try. And if I don't make it, that guy is going to make my life so miserable. I'll have to. Oh, I was telling my husband about it. And my husband is a very different personality than me. He does, he does not like any kind of a confrontation. He's a very gentlemanly fellow. Um, and I'm not. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I was telling him about what this guy was doing. And he said, well, you come home, you're all upset and everything. Why don't you just quit? And I said, no, I'm not going to quit because that's why guys like that are in power is because nobody challenges them. I'm going to challenge him, and if I don't win, then he'll make life miserable for me, and I'll probably have to quit then. So I was, I was telling my friend that I was going in class with, and... Um, she was asking me how I was doing this and what I was doing there and la 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 and very interested in what I was doing. And I think this was in February or it was during one of the winter months. Anyway, I got a call one night from this woman whose name was Jana. And it turned out she was an assistant to the majority leader in the Senate. And um, she said, uh, she called and said, you know, I've been in Des Moines and I was talking to the majority leader and some other people there in the Senate. And I just wondered, would you consider running for the Senate from your district? Well, I was totally flabbergasted because I had never in my life considered running for a public office mm -hmm. and definitely not the Senate, you know. And uh, anyway, I said, Oh gosh, I, I you know I don't think so. I've got six kids, and I live in the country, and I've never been in public office, and we don't have a lot of money. And and she knew just exactly how to handle me. She said, "Well, okay, if you're not interested, um, then we'll find somebody else." And I said, "Well, it's not that I'm not interested. It's just that." And I went through the litany of reasons why I thought I couldn't run again. Mm. And she said, well, you know, this uh, because of uh, the census, they've had redistricting in the district that you live in, which would be Joan Cedar and part of Linton County, uh, has become more democratic. And we think that we can win this district. And I've been talking about you to the Senate leaders and stuff. So <clears throat> anyway... I was, boy, on a roller coaster. I said, uh, finally, I said, well, I have to talk to my husband and family because I know that this will make a big difference in their life, too, you know. So then I just went up and down. Oh, I sure, I can do it. No, there's no way I could do it. Sure, I can do it. <laughs> and then uh, I called our kids. We had... Um, I think there were three, three or four of them were in college then. So I called each one and told them what I was considering. And each one of them said, go for it, mom. You know, 
and the one daughter that was up at uh, UNI at the time, she was in the student senate, so she was already a senator. <laughs> mm -hmm. And anyway, they encouraged me to go, and my husband said uh, that I should make my own decision. He said, you know, just know what... Probably knew he couldn't make up your mind anyway for you, Yeah, right? maybe not, yeah. <laughs> Anyway, he said, you know, I'll support whatever you decide, but um, I'll be your backup person, but I'm not going to the rubber chicken dinners, and I'm not going door to door and stuff for you. I just don't like that kind of stuff. And I said, yeah, that's okay, that's okay. And, of course, this woman, Jana, had said, well, you know, the party will help you, will help you in the mm -hmm. Senate and everything. So I finally decided, okay, I'll run. It was against a 12-year incumbent, um, an older man who was a very nice man, um, rather quiet and inactive and stuff, and lived um, in the rural area. Mm -hmm. Anyway, then uh, as soon as I said that I would run and sign some papers that I would do that, then they said, okay, now you need to raise $25,000. And I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, $25,000, my Lord, you know, that's a lot of money. And so what me. would it take today to run a campaign? Oh, now they're up in a million dollars for a okay. state Senate seat. They but had a million dollars. This was, yeah. you know, 25, sure. 27 sure. years ago. But I digress. Um, Interesting. We have a lot of things I want to talk about, Women's Equality Coalition, and we may yeah. maybe come back and revisit that. Okay. Um, so <clears throat> let's, uh, let's bring this to a close now for, uh, for today, but tell me uh, what advice, again, you would give to people who are interested in running, because it sounds like it's not, a, it's not a straight shot. It's not an easy no, road, and there are a lot of things. Not. Well, uh, one thing, uh, you have to believe in yourself, and I was having some trouble with that because you do have to raise a lot of money. You have to ask people, strangers and your friends and family, for money. And, oh, I hated that, to mm -hmm. ask somebody for money. But someone Did you gave, get over that, or did yeah, it get easier for you? Yeah, someone gave me a good piece of advice. They said, listen, if you can't ask someone for some money, then you don't believe in yourself. Do you believe in yourself? And I said, yes. And they said, well, then you can ask for money. And that was really a good lesson because I think that's the main thing you have to do is you have to believe in yourself. You have to have some ideas of what you want to do, you know, or be opposed to some of the stuff that's going on. Like now it should be easy for anybody to be opposed to what's going on. But... Um, <laughs> <clears throat> then you so issue oriented yeah you have to be issue oriented uh -huh. you have to be able to raise money you have to be able to work probably a 12 to 14 hour day because you have to knock on doors um uh, i'm a democrat of course and democrats are more people to people rather than big advertising and stuff but um by the time i ran the second time then I was on television. I had billboards. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, I think my race was one of the, if not the most expensive race in the state at that time. And when was this? What year? About um, that would have been uh, just eighty-eight. Okay, probably around nineteen eighty-eight. Okay, then let me ask you a couple questions. Uh, you mentioned the current administration. 
So considering some of the issues about um, uh, the women's issues about misusing women, say a few things about that. And, and um, it seems to become such a hot button issue. Yeah. Well, like I said, uh, women bring different experiences. And of course, when I look at the issues that are going on today, I think about women having children, women raising children, women that are single, women, you know, either through death, divorce, or whatever it is. And so many of the things that are being cut today are issues that directly impact those women. Mm -hmm. And uh, they are issues where the majority of the people that are uh, severely impacted are women and children. And so, um, to me, uh, the current administration is not looking to the future at all. They are simply taking care of themselves and their buddies and obviously do not care about what's happening to our children as far as education or as the health care. So or they're very the polar, uh, very polar camps. The women oh, that are actually definitely. taking care yeah. of the children and doing a lot of the, the raising and the decision makers on the other yeah. hand. And even the issue, you know, of minimum wage, that affects women even more than it affects men. But it's men that are making, primarily men that are making the decisions. So I got a tough question issues. for you. I got yeah. a tough question for you then. How do we reframe that so that the decision makers have some empathy for uh, the results of the, the people who are there affecting? What, where's that sensitivity? How do we... I honestly don't think that you can change some people's minds. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things that I think has highlighted that just this week now is Senator Grassley coming out and saying the reason that they're not giving tax breaks or looking out for the middle or lower class is because they would just spend every darn penny on women, uh, alcohol, and movies. I guess I didn't hear that, but oh, you it's, have it. it's quite oh, a oh yes, quite a pointed well, statement. Oh yeah, that that sort of highlights what uh, different uh, which the different parties or different people feel about the rest of their citizens mm -hmm. is. Do you think that, uh, you know, you, do you feel an obligation to help people uh, like, say, a single parent that is trying to raise two children mm -hmm. and trying to work at a minimum wage job and doesn't have a decent car and doesn't really have the support system? Do you think that is a good idea to help that person and those children? Or do you think it's a good idea to ignore them? and let them just fall by the wayside, uh -huh. you know? And are you the kind of person that is willing to spend $27,000 to lock somebody up in the penitentiary in Anamosa? Mm -hmm. Or are you willing to spend $5,000 on uh, rehabilitation chi or child okay. care, uh -huh. you know? Um, and there, there's a very different philosophy between the two parties where the one party seems very to believe they're entitled to everything that's good, and the other party that believes they have an obligation to work for other people. And what about the, 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 the tax reform package? Can you well, say a few things about that? Yeah, uh, just, you know, I haven't studied it. Of course, none of the I don't think anybody knows read it. for real yeah, what's going on there, first of all. They okay. just know parts of it. But what I, I see it as just a massive 
uh, taking from the middle class and giving to those that are already wealthy. And, you know, uh, Senator Grassley has always talked about the death tax, the estate tax. Mm -hmm. Well, I think there are only, there are a handful of people in Iowa that have a big enough estate. Farmers, he's talking about farmers. There are a handful of farmers in Iowa who have an estate big enough to be subject to the tax because we've raised the level up to $5 million per person, and I believe then it would be $10 million if it's a married couple. I'm not 100% sure on that now. But anyway, there are just a handful of people. But then what my question always is, what are you going to cut when you cut your revenue by giving tax breaks and, and giving that kind of help to people that already have it? Where are you going to cut? Well, you know darn well where they're going to cut. They're going to cut the groups that are not Vocal, powerful that have and no wealthy voice. and have, <clears throat> really have no voice. Yeah. Um, okay. So final question. Um, where, where are we headed in this country? What do you, what do you, what do you think? Well, usually I'm a pretty optimistic person, uh -huh. but I'm really worried about what's happening day-to-day, uh, -day even. Today, one of the first items I see is that uh, President Trump is declaring Jerusalem as the capital uh -huh. of Israel. Well, that's like smoking a cigarette while you're filling your gas tank at the station. Uh -huh. That's going to explode so badly and not do anything good at all. And, uh, you know, if we end up in another war, like if we attack North Korea or if we attack Iran, um, it's going to be people who are in the military primarily because of the poverty draft, uh, what's referred to as the poverty draft, mm -hmm. because they can't find a life-sustaining job. Otherwise, they go into the military, and that directly impacts poorer people and people of color. And it doesn't affect the Trump sons or the Trump son-in-laws or the Grassley son or any, mm -hmm. any of those guys. The same as it's always been in the Civil War, in the, any war we've ever had. It's wealthy people make the decisions and poor people do the fighting and Move die. by them. Yeah. Um, well, Bev, we have a lot of topics that we're going to have to revisit. Will you come back sometime and we can talk sure. more about uh, women's equality, yeah. uh, the coalition, and a number of other right. things. Yeah. Uh, any, any parting words, any final words? Any, uh, where's, I, the, I guess, where's the hope? What, yeah. do we, what do we look forward to? What do we one, keep? One thing I'd want to party to people that make decisions in political parties is ask people, or even, uh, even if you're not in a position of power in a political party, if you know someone that has good ideas and is very energetic and a really decent person, ask them to run. Ask mm -hmm. them to run because there are probably hundreds of people out there like me that had no intention of running at all. But if you and your friends and your family and uh, your political supporters all work together, uh, you can accomplish amazing things and become elected but you have to a lot of people have to be asked and persuaded i think sometimes we forget our own power 
right. and the collective power we have. It sounds like there is support out there. And like the man said, if you, uh, you can't win if you don't play. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, thank you, Beth. We yeah. will pick this up later. Okay. Thank you. Uh-huh. And you've been listening to the KHAS Weekly Community Talk Show, Connection. Our host is Beth Parker with today's guest, Bev Hannon. Be sure to join KHAS next week this time for another informative talk show, Connection.